This is a podcast from thebuglepodcast.com. The Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, Buglers, and welcome to issue 276 of the universe's largest covert operation to reinstitute the worship of the Greek Olympian gods into mainstream politics and society. I'm Andy Zaltzman, four decades of successfully avoiding reality and still going strong, and joining me from the silly side of the big pond, it's the comedy Titanic himself, in that he gets right to the very bottom of things and has become considerably better known for what he's done on the other side of the Atlantic after leaving Britain and leave some people completely cold. It's John Oliver! <laughs> oh boy, that is devastatingly fair, Andy. Um, well, uh, hello Andy, hello Buglers. Uh, quick update with me, Andy. Liverpool lost 3-0 to Real Madrid last night, so I have nothing to say. Nothing. <laughs> My team was humiliated by a bunch of Spaniards. Not even Spaniards, Andy. A Portuguese guy, a Colombian, a Mexican, another Portuguese guy, a couple of Frenchmen, and a Welshman who didn't even play. It's a disaster, Andy. <laughs> well, oh, you have my sincerest, uh, sincerest sym- sympathies. Um, tough, tough times. Yeah, um, very, very tough times. <laughs> Has there been a mass protest on the streets of New York by other, no, other Liverpool fans? No, I'm irritated fans? by the indifference here. All oh, right. Well, we should raise the issue on your on your show, John. <laughs> I have a little model Philip Coutinho in my office, and I can't <laughs> even look at him today. <laughs> So this is Bugle 276 for the week, ending Friday the 24th of October 2014. Uh, We're recording on the 23rd of October. On this day, in the year 425 AD, Valentinian III became Roman Emperor at the age of six, which seems that's quite a young age to be promoting a kid to be emperor. I mean, maybe he was a... If, you, if you're good enough, you're old enough, I, I guess there is that. It turned out that he probably wasn't uh, either of those two things. Also, oh, okay. 275 years to the day since the start of the War of Jenkins' Ear, which was provoked by the Spanish lopping off the ear of an English sailor called Jenkins, ended up with 25,000 people dead and a treaty agreeing to restore things to exactly how they were before it all started. Classic war. Um, apart from uh, obviously restoring the side of Jenkins's head, which remained considerably damaged. Um, nominated for the stupidest named conflict of the second millennium by uh, International War magazine, uh, alongside the Wiggly Waggly War. That was an early 17th century conflict between Britain and Romania, in which both sides agreed to use flaccid swords made from string in order to minimise casualties on both sides. The Battle of Colin the Terrapin in 1903, that was between Mexico and Russia, prompted by Tsar Nicholas II accidentally eating uh, a prized terrapin belonging to the Mexican president Porfirio Diaz, thinking it was a novelty ice cream pudding at a World Heads of State cocktail on Blackjack evening in Vegas. A grief-stricken Diaz, who'd named his favourite reptilian pet after the ancient Aztec god of minor sporting injuries, Kualenth Wahaga Mohamed Totok, sent a telegram home ordering the Mexican army to invade Moscow the next morning. They reached as far as the Mexican Pacific coast, opened fire in a vague northwesterly direction, whilst the Russian army stayed in their barracks several thousand miles away, uh, muttering, see you in the winter, losers. The fighting raged for two and a half minutes, resulted in no casualties, before Tsar Nicholas uh, had a tank full of new terrapins, all named Colin, delivered to Diaz's hotel room, and a peace treaty was agreed. And also the Birdshit War, 
that was Bolivia and Peru versus Chile in the 19th century over access to massive piles of bird shit. And that one did actually happen. I will admit that the other two <laughs> might not entirely have happened. But the bird shit war, also known as the Guano War, was a genuine war over uh, because they, bird shit was quite useful in making gunpowder, I believe, or explosives. Um, and on the subjects of massive piles of shit, on this day in 1958, the world was treated to the first appearance of the Smurfs in a magazine. <laughs> uh, and on fr- Friday the 24th of October, 1947, uh, so that's just 67 short years ago, Walt Disney testified before the House Un-American Activities Committee, naming Disney employees that he believed to be communists. These included Donald Duck, basically what Lenin would have been if he'd been a duck. Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, that's an obvious parody of Mao Zedong. Three of the Seven Dwarves, Grumpy, riling against the privileged oligarchy. Dopey, hadn't thought through the logistics of a Marxist superstate. And Sneezy, obviously spent the winter in Russia. As always, a section of the Bugle is going straight in the bin this week. You and your pyramid. We tell you how to prepare a fitting memorial for future civilizations to remember you by. Get your kids to decorate the inside with some funny little pictures to trick archaeologists of the future into trying to decipher a supposedly complex written language. We give you advice on DIY budget pyramids. Not everyone can afford a full Egyptian big and pointy effort and the enslaved workforce required to construct it. So we tell you how to construct a mausoleum visible from miles around and set to last at least 3,000 years using just ordinary household cardboard boxes, some instant porridge oats, white wine vinegar or other replacement embalming fluids such as ketchup, mayonnaise or peanut butter, and 3 million tonnes of limestone blocks. And we give you a free audio curse that plays automatically on your mummified remains being uncovered. Ah, loser, you have made a big mistake. I, the great, insert name here, ruler of, insert home address with postal or zip code, curse you to be hounded by, insert agents of eternal vengeance here, for the next, insert duration of curse up to a maximum of three generations. For longer curses, please see the website for our platinum Super Pharaoh package. Top story this week, Great Britain update. And Andy, as we know, I am from Great Britain. I am Great British, I believe the term is. But I was driven from those pastures by what I can only describe as understandable indifference. So let's take the temperature of Blighty and see how it's doing at the moment. Oh, John, you say uh, dr- you, you could have stuck it out. I have stuck it out in the face of the same understandable indifference <laughs> for eight more years. I just clearly made of well, tougher you're... stuff than you, quitter. You could you could take more of an indifferent punch than I could, Andy. I guess that's you've got a better chin than I have. Uh, so a major new report has warned that Britain is on the verge of becoming a permanently divided nation, with the poorest in society being left behind. And some will hear that as a warning, Andy, but others will take that as a sign that Britain is returning back to its glorious roots. Because that's the problem with dire-sounding reports. Uh, Their reception is predicated entirely on people's point of view. So when, for instance, the Social Mobility and Child Poverty Commission says that Britain is likely to see an unprecedented rise in child poverty over the next decade due to the effect of welfare cuts, they're probably assuming that people will be utterly horrified by that. But that does not take into account that some people will be hoping 
hoping that this means the return of child chimney sweeps. <laughs> oh, they were so charismatic, Andy. Always breaking into song with their dusty, dusty faces and doing that cute thing where they cough up soot, which, you know, had filled their little lungs. Plus, their tiny little hands meant one could truly expect a sparklingly clean chimney. <laughs> in fact, a statement from the uh, Conservative-led... Uh government in response to, to this claim hailed the reports as, quote, further proof that our economic reforms are truly working and added that there is still much to do over the rest of the course of this government and the next to ensure that permanent divisions become even, even more permanently permanent before Labour hit back saying a Labour government would leave the poorest parts of society up to 2% less far behind than the current coalition government, a claim that was immediately rubbished by the government's Minister for Social Immobility, Redwin Strave, who said, and who's going to pay for that? Corporate taxation or Basil the Magic Foal? Good luck with either of those, Lenin. Uh, and a spokesman for the right-wing social think tank, R. Diddums, said, this is a further sign that Britain is returning to the dynamic levels of inequality that were present when we rose to the very top of the world imperialism rankings. It is a historical fact that the poor, poor spluttering themselves to death in squalid conditions and being ruthlessly exploited by the wealthy and powerful coincided with Britain conquering at least 95% of the known world. And that cannot possibly be coincidence. Go Team GB! Britain's current class divide does seem to suggest that the UK government has looked at the popularity of Downton Abbey overseas and thought, well, why don't we just do that again for real this time? <laughs> People will love it. Uh, uh, Lord Norman Tebbit has also been back in action this week. Oh, you yeah. may remember him Bugles, from previous Bugles. <laughs> As a man who, for a start, looks exactly like what you think a man called Norman, Norman Tepper would look like, <laughs> but who was also absolutely terrified about the concept of a lesbian queen. <laughs> uh, now, in the past, he's responded to unemployment uh, by saying that people should just get on their bike and look for work, presumably in some form of velodrome. Uh, <laughs> That's well, right. This well, week, it was only 25 years from when he said that till you know, we had... Cavendish and Bradley Wiggins dominating the Tour de France, John. You've got to give Tebbit some exactly. credit for that. He was either 25 years ahead of his time or 300 years behind it. Uh, well, Those two are not mutually well, this, exclusive in British politics. Yeah, well, well, this week, Tebbit sent a letter suggesting an idea that he feels would kill two birds with one stone, which is true if those two birds represent civilised society and one stone represents a crotchety old man's stupid f***ing idea. Uh, he suggested that young unemployed people should be forced to pick up weeds in exchange for unemployment benefits, which is either, Andy, the opinion of an arsehole or the opinion of someone who has a lot of weeds in his garden <laughs> and who is also an arsehole. His, his exact letter read... Landowners who wish to control ragwort, which I believe is a weed, <laughs> face an impossible task when roadside verges are dominated by it to an extent that I cannot remember in the past. There would be little cost to bring that under control if neats and low-level criminals were required as part of their contribution to the society which finances them or which they have abused if they were used to uproot this weed. Now... You probably think a lot of things there, but chief amongst them might well be, what the f*** is a neat? And that's a valid question. Because yep. um, a neat, as, as he refers to them, apparently stands for a person who is not in employment, education or training. And you really get the sense that Tebbit has learned that acronym to try and desperately wean himself off saying the word peasant, <laughs> which I think rolls much cleaner off Tebbit's tongue. <laughs> Ragwort is a real problem, though. Is that... Makes animals sick. 
Really? Mm. Um, how, many, how much do they have to eat to make to make them sick? Not much. Right. Yeah. Just a field's worth. So Tebbit is camouflaging an understandable love of animals under right-wing political yes. rhetoric. <laughs> That's a curious way to go about things. In UKIP news, the UK Independence Party, uh, the political party which has managed to reduce the British psyche down to a jus source of its worst qualities, <laughs> has a new song from uh, former Radio 1 DJ Mike Reed. Uh, it's called the UKIP Calypso, <laughs> and it features lines such as, Leaders committed a cardinal sin, open the borders, let them all come in. Illegal immigrants in every town, stand up and be counted, Blair and Brown. And I have to say, Andy, it's a little ironic that the musical style of choice was Calypso, which is, of course, sonically a bit of an immigrant. Coming over to Britain, Andy, <laughs> taking over from all our good, hard-working loot music. It's not right. <laughs> It's a truly extraordinary song. Let's uh, let's just hear some of the the mellifluous. Uh... Leaders committed a cardinal sin. Open the borders, let them all come in. Illegal immigrants in every town. Tones that have seen the song reviewed as the greatest piece of British music since uh, Bodicea sang uh, karaoke on a hen night. So uh, there you go. I mean, it's very hard to argue with uh, creative output like that. Some of the reviews of this song. Uh, from the music press uh, described it as quotes like staring into the arsehole of Satan the lyrical (laughs) equivalent of smashing yourself in the nuts with a garden shovel Uh, the NME I believe described it as the logical end point of all western civilization. it's hard to see what further creative carrot chunks can be vomited into the cultural sick bag after this it makes one regret that cavemen ever discovered that if you line up dinosaurs with different sized skulls and whack them on the heads with a big stick you can get a half decent tune out of them before they eat you uh, I mean, admittedly, that's not that wasn't actually published, but you know, it's just surely uh, a matter of uh, a matter of time. It's um, I mean, has it uh, had a lot of airtime states? I don't know how how hard British musicians work to make the break uh, on the, well, that's the, dream, the other side it? of the Atlantic. And clearly, Mike Reed has got one eye on the U.S. market here. <laughs> uh, the only review here has been from Kirk Cobain, who released a statement saying, "I'm so glad I'm dead. <laughs> I'm so so glad." Because as if. As if the song wasn't conceptually, fundamentally flawed enough, Mike Reed opts to sing the Calypso, of course, in a mock Caribbean <laughs> accent, which, which he defended, apparently, by saying, it's a satire and a bit of fun. It's not terribly serious. It wouldn't have sound, sounded very good sung in a Surrey accent. But the problem with that is, it seems to imply that it sounded anything other than horrific being sung in a Surrey accent pretending to be a Caribbean accent. Yeah, he did say it was an old-fashioned political uh, satire. Uh, pretty old-fashioned, I'd say at least 150 years old-fashioned. <laughs> and those words he said, you cannot sing a calypso with a Surrey accent. I think that's quite a reliable guide. Um, so if you do have a Surrey accent and you are thinking of singing calypso, either A, don't sing calypso, B, check the lyrics first just to make 100% sure there aren't any words, verses, or entire f***ing songs that might sound just a little bit on the racist side of the seesaw if being sung, for example, with a Surrey accent, or a lot on the racist side of the seesaw if being sung with a Caribbean accent by someone who usually has a Surrey accent. Alternatively, C, ask a professional Caribbean calypso singer to sing it for you if he reads the lyrics and calls you a It's probably time for a rewrite. (laughs) It's racism is not even 
Perhaps it's worst flaw, Andy. It's the fact it's an artistic abomination <laughs> that is even worse. It has a catastrophic couplet like this. It says, With the EU, we must be on our metal, want to change our lawnmowers and our kettles. <laughs> and I'll, I read that line again and again and again this morning, Andy, and I'm not sure I've ever been happier to have left the country <laughs> than after reading those words. Well, I mean, I, don't, I mean, they do. They do. And that's that's what the EU has been all about. I mean, it might have started mm-hmm. under the rather obvious uh, cover of trying to stop Europe slaughtering itself every 25 years in an avoidable <laughs> me- mechanised conflict. But it was all really about making us get confused between lawnmowers and kettles, which, because as a nation, one of our greatest traits is that we're very good at tea and very good at gardening. And uh, Europe, uh, resented that and want us, uh, wanted us basically to uh, mow our tea leaves uh, and boil our lawns. So thank thank God for people who speak the truth to power like Mike Reed. Mm-hmm. John. Reed defended himself by saying, I do not have a racist bone in my body. But bones tend not to be the major problem with racists. Brains and <laughs> larynxes traditionally more of an issue. <laughs> In other UKIP news, uh, the party have announced that if they win next year's general election, they will use Britain's as-yet-untouched nuclear deterrent to blast cracks into the Earth's crust, uh, up the whole length of the English Channel and the North Sea, to leave the UK on its own personal tectonic plate, finally embracing our destiny as not part of Europe. And as an extra bonus bugle treat this week, um, recently it was the 300th episode of Answer Me This, the podcast featuring Ollie Mann, to who I am not related in any way, and Helen Zaltzman, to who I am completely related uh, in a very much brother-to-sister relationship. Um, and they, in their 300th episode, they had interviews with uh, various um, global mega-celebrities such as myself, and uh, expats such as John. Uh, And this is what John and I recorded for their 300th episode. Hello, answer me this, listeners. I am Andy Zaltzman, the elder brother of Helen Zaltzman, who you may know from the show Answer Me This. Uh, With me uh, from stateside is Mr John Oliver. Hello, John. Yes. Hello, Andy. Uh, Hello, Helen. (laughs) Hello. uh, uh, what, What do they call their listeners, Andy? I, I, answer me thisters. I don't know. Answer me thipsters. <laughs> okay. Answer me. Th- answer me thisners. <laughs> answer me thisners. We've uh, uh, we have a few uh, answers for you that, from the questions you've sent in. Brian from Windsor wrote, "Andy yep. Stroke John, answer me this: Why in football is a nutmeg called a nutmeg?" Ah, that is well. That is a genuinely interesting question, yep. Andy. Yep. And the answer is, of course, that. Uh, uh, the smell of shame uh, is, is a, has a nutmeg hue to it. Oh, really? And when the ball is placed through your legs, uh, you're humiliated and uh, you will, from your glands behind your ears, you will excrete a spice, a shamey spice, which, uh, yeah, the nose naturally identifies as nutmeg. Right. There, there is a, a cinnamon hue to it, but nutmeg is the dominating characteristic. Also, there's, a, there's another link in that uh, footballers who are particularly good at nutmegs, like nutmeg itself historically, are ridiculously overvalued and traded around the world. <laughs> um, Charlotte asks, uh, different recipes call for garlic to be chopped, others say to crush it or to slice it thinly. Andy Stroke John, answer me this. Does this make any difference to the flavour? No. 
You don't. Uh, you just want to throw the whole thing in and hope for the best. <laughs> really? Just the whole yeah. whole heads of God. I, mean, I say I say you want to crush it, but you don't want to crush it physically. You want to crush the garlic spiritually because oh, then it right. sweats out its despair, and the taste of a despairing garlic is, I think, 18% more tasty than the, the taste of an optimistic piece of garlic. So uh, I'd say crush That's it. That's why French food is so garlicky. <laughs> they've managed to imbue it with a sense of ennui. <laughs> It's all those arty films with no real ending. (laughs) Uh, This one came from Callum. I've recently entered into a long-term relationship. Do you have any tips for making a long-term relationship work? Well, I I would say, Andy, that it's not a great sign that he is Skyping questions (laughs) to a podcast (laughs) about this. Well. (laughs) Don't. That is... um, if you have questions, they should be for a trained professional. <laughs> this is not the way. Asking Andy and I this is basically pronouncing your current relationship dead. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think I'm quite a good person to ask because I've, I've just celebrated my 10th wedding anniversary to Helen, yep. Helen Zaltzman's sister-in-law, coincidentally. Um, and uh, I would say the secret of our relationship is my wife being superior to me at almost everything that we do together. Right. Just the knowledge that I am batting way above average. I think that's absolutely right. key. Um, and don't tell her that, otherwise she might start to ask some questions that have no real answer. Uh, also, you know, our own working relationship, John, you know, we've been working yeah. together uh, on and off what, so about almost 15 years, well, 14, 13, 14 years now. <laughs> Is that true? Oh, yeah. my God. Since, since my first enemy show, 2001, so that's, yeah, 13, 13 and a bit years ago. That's uh, when we first, I guess, started doing stuff. On, and so I guess the key to a long-lasting relationship is for yeah. one of the people in it to relocate to a different continent <laughs> after about five years. That's right. Yeah, that's clearly the absolute, yeah, that, absolute key. That really puts the spice in the yeah. relationship. And to basically maintain that relationship through only audial memes and only actually <laughs> see each other right. about once a year. <laughs> good advice that's very good advice very good advice Uh, this is from jenny from up north we've been invited to a christening for what we thought was a nine-month-old child today on checking the child's age we were told that the christening wasn't just for the baby but also for its three other siblings aged from nine months uh, to 11 years in total so four children john andy answer me this what do we buy for a christening of four children we don't really know especially with such an age gap between the youngest and the oldest we only really know the oldest child can we just buy for her, or should our mere presence be enough of a gift? So, I, I mean, I don't uh, know. That's Well, I think absolutely. For a four-child christening, yep. that is objectively ridiculous. <laughs> unless you, I, I would, at the very least, hope they do them all at once. Yeah. That's just a quadruple dunk. <laughs> so that's, just, of, that's how synchronised swimming began, wasn't it? It was mass christenings yeah, in right. a gigantic font. Or just line them up, put the holy water in a bucket and just <laughs> smash it across them like the ice bucket challenge. I prefer to think of it as like a power hose. Like a kind of a yeah. <laughs> I would say to an event uh, as ridiculous as that, especially yep. for kids you don't know, turn up with a f***ing bow on yourself. Yep. Say, take this bow off me. They'll take the bow off and just scream in their face, you're f***ing welcome, where do I sit and where's the buffet? <laughs> Okay, so you don't really need to give them anything because what they're getting out of it is a lifetime of fear of the Lord. So what more do they need? <laughs> That's what, right. What yeah. more could they possibly need? And finally, this one uh, be particularly opposite for you, uh, John. This is from Phil in Triorki. Answer me this. 
Why is the toilet called a restroom in America? The toilet is the last place that I would consider taking a power nap. Well, that's that's because you don't belong here, Phil. That's right. <laughs> that's that's because you don't. If you have to ask that question, you'll never understand the answer. It's the perfect place for a nap, Andy. <laughs> for that, particularly New and York, full John. Full body rest. New, New York, the sit, famously the city that never sleeps. Not true. It's just yeah. people don't see it sleeping because everyone sleeps on the John. Clearly. <laughs> exactly. Bugle anniversary section. And, uh, well, we had a week off last week. And sadly, that meant that we missed the official seventh birthday of the Bugle. Seven years of pure, unadulterated fact blasted into the world's grateful face. Can you you believe it, John? Seven years. 70% of a decade, Andy. Yep. That is a chilling, chilling thought. (laughs) It's amazing to think how the world has changed in those seven years. I mean, you think seven years ago the internet was still a pipe dream in Tim Berners-Lee's pipe and... He was still trying to light that pipe and smoke the hallucinatory tobacco of progress. And the first issues of the Bugle, of course, were broadcast via a network of yoghurt pots connected by tautly pulled string across the Atlantic. And every year on our anniversary day, I burn a candle made from the wax cylinders we recorded that historic first episode on. Who'd have thought, given, uh, John, that our longest-running previous show had lasted 14 episodes spread almost imperceptibly across three years of late-night radio scheduling, that we would have done a show that has now lasted nearly 500 years. Sorry, Almost half a millennium. Sorry, almost half of this millennium so far. Uh, Seven years ago, Barack Obama was still a humble, small-town lawyer dealing with cases about who owned a hedge and whether a dog barking on Saturday constitutes anti-Semitism. Dreaming of one day struggling to marry the infinite complexities of global politics with the dunderheaded binary dick dangling of the US political scene. Seven years ago, Berlin was still divided in two. By the wall, a very long physical metaphor. Australia was just a theoretical landmass that people thought might or might not exist. Bob Dylan had just won Chorister of the Year for the 12th consecutive year, and sex was illegal in 85% of the known world. And above all, Colonel Gaddafi was still Libya's undisputable number one, although on the day of the very first bugle he did write in his diary, I do hope that, if ever one day I'm filmed being aggressively manhandled to death after hiding inside a sewage pipe in a not even slightly heroic glass stand, I do have the decency to think, yeah, I'll probably did have this coming. But some things, of course, never change despite the passage of time. The sun still rises most mornings and gets pissed and falls over most evenings. Lions are still risking their own lives with an unhealthy meat-only diet. God is still looking on with a wry detached smile about how, about how wound up he seems to have made some people. And you can still buy tickets for my shows on the door of not very big art centres, even all this time on New Greenham Art Centre specifically this Friday. You will be able to buy quite a lot of tickets on the door and Canterbury on Saturday. Then Nottingham Glee, uh, Durham Gala and Staffordshire Gatehouse Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Next week details at satiristforhire.com. Which is quite a long-winded way of getting in a plug for my forthcoming shows. Thanks, <laughs> thanks, got there though, thanks to all buglers who've been to the shows, um, shows so far. They've been um, a hoot for me and hopefully at least a partial hoot for you. Your emails now, and uh, we have an email here from Fabio Reali uh, with the subject line, Germany 7, Brazil 1. Uh, hello, John, Andy and Chris, in order of 
whose name I heard first. My name is Fabio Reale. I'm from Brazil. I'm a fan, but not a huge one, as I'm only 170 centimetres tall. In Bugle 275, you carelessly accused our President Dilma Rousseff of being at least partly responsible for this hilarious result. Again, referring to, of course, when Germany humiliated Brazil 7-1. Well, the game was held in Belo Horizonte uh, in the province of Neves, the other candidate, who is senator and former governor of said province. And that uh, that means he is as much responsible for that result as our president. You need to get your facts right, and our reality here in Brazil is that no matter the winner, Brazilian football is utterly screwed. <laughs> Keep up the good work, Fabio Reale. There was... I mean, he definitely is plausibly Brazilian, Andy, in that he's furious about certainly that joke, but even more the fact underpinning that joke. <laughs> yes, and sadly, even as the fury with the joke will dissipate, the facts underpinning yeah. the joke, I'm afraid, is there for all eternity, Brazil. It's very hard to see where he goes on nation from here. Also, uh, had a number of emails and tweets uh, in response to my suggestion that there might be a computer game developed in which you play the role of the Ebola virus. And apparently that game basically already existed. <laughs> so, um, uh, Pandemic is free to play online, uh, informs Rebecca Johnson. Uh, and basically you uh, are a virus stroke parasite stroke bacteria with the goal to kill everyone on the planet. Now, I mean, that's to me, doesn't seem like the most productive use of gaming technology, John. Um, I mean, it's it's hard to see how civilization can really look itself in the face and say, I've done as well as I could with what I've got. <laughs> that is it for Bugle 276. We will hopefully be back uh, next week with another uh, full Bugle. Um, I realise I did promise you some excerpts from Satirist for Hire, but unfortunately um, it turned out that uh, editing sound together whilst sitting on trains between gigs and trying to write jokes were not entirely uh, mutually compatible activities. So, uh, But we will have something for you uh, next week. Do keep your emails coming in to info at thebuglepodcast.com. Keep your satire requests coming in to satirise this at satiristforhire.com. I will be doing some specific bugle satire uh, recorded at uh, shows over the next couple of weeks uh, for putting out on uh, an impending bugle. Um, and uh, don't forget to check out our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash the hyphen bugle. Uh, in the meantime, best of luck to Mike Reed for getting to the top of the, uh, the charts with his uh, UKIP Calypso. I think it would probably be probably the high point in British cultural history. Until next time, buglers, goodbye. Bye. Hi, it's producer Chris from The Bugle here. Did you know that I have a new series of my podcast, Richie Firth Travel Hacker, out now? It's the show where Richie Firth and I talk about how to make travel better in our very special way. In this series, we discuss line bikes, Teslas, the London Overground, and a whole bunch of other random stuff that possibly involves wheels or tracks or engines of some variety. God, what a hot sell this is. I mean, you, you, you must be so excited. Listen now.